If you'll open your Bibles to Ezekiel 37 and then also to John 17. want to read verse 23 and 24 together once again and then we'll turn to John 17. Ezekiel 37 beginning in verse 23. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes. And observe them. This was part of prophecy and promise that could only be fulfilled in Christ. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying in the order of those covenant promises, and he is giving his word to those promises, beginning in verse 20. John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. That's a reference to the disciples that are there hearing the prayer in the moment. But for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Now, remember the Part of the prophecy and the promise out of Ezekiel 37 is that they would all have one shepherd. David, the physical king, could not have fulfilled that in a far future sense nor in an eternal sense. And so David was a type of Christ and therefore Jesus is the one who fulfills it and he is praying in order of that fulfillment which is ongoing and will happen even after this prayer. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This morning we'll look at verses 20 through 23. This will be in two parts. Number one this morning will be in the context of the fullness of the passage in its fulfillment. And next week we will look at more of the emphasis on the unity that's in this passage, speaking of the one. 
But there's a context to the whole of that unity which Jesus speaks of, and we'll deal with that this morning. Firstly, we need to notice a prayer for the blossoming body of Christ. A prayer for the blossoming body of Christ. Christ prayed for the present disciples. We've already seen that in its context because he's been asking for these things on behalf of his disciples, the ones who were given, the ones who have been kept. He says in verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given to me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. But now in verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. It's a sense in which we have to understand he has been praying for these present disciples. These are the ones that have already been listening and believing and following and obeying the Lord Jesus. They've been listening to his teaching. They've been listening to the reactions of the religious leaders around. They've been listening to the reactions of the very crowds. Think about what these disciples have already seen. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching. They've seen the, re- the religious leaders react to the miracles and the teaching. They've seen the very crowds that have gathered to hear him teach, the crowds that gathered and brought their sick to him. And not every one of them was healed. Only certain ones were healed. What we are recognizing and that Jesus is giving a recognition that the seeds of this blossoming body of Christ, there's already growth there. There's already been listening. If we go through and we see in Jesus preaching, there's been people who have been believing and they've been following. We know of this group of 12, but there are others who have been listening and they've been believing. That means that there's already been a growing body developing. There's been a believing of the present disciples, the following of these present disciples, and and an obeying of these present disciples. We have to recognize that there are people that are already then and there in the moment that are listening to these things, believing, and they're following in obedience. They are looking. Now, think about what that means for a moment. The entrance of Jesus into the world. He has grown in stature and understanding. He has revealed that he is the very son of God. It has been somewhat veiled to those who are not believing. Their eyes have been blinded. But to those who are believing, he has been seen to be the very son of God. Not only have they listened but they've obeyed and they continue to obey. They're obeying this man who came on the scene literally out of nowhere. John the Baptist was the only one out in the wilderness preaching in a very present way. Others believed in a Messiah to come, but John the Baptist had been preaching and telling, he's the one. 
And he's baptized by John the Baptist. He's now on the scene. And over this two and a half, three year period, people have had to come to a realization of who he is. And they've had that just thrust right in their face. There have been deniers and scoffers and mockers. They've sought to kill Jesus and his followers. And yet in the midst of all of that kind of pressure, there are these disciples. They're listening and they're obeying. They're following. You and I think we have pressure. These disciples, they had serious pressure as to what it meant to follow the Lord Jesus in obedience to his commands. It was a life or death matter for them. These religious leaders could have gone berserk at any moment and decided, you know what? Who cares what the Romans have to say? We need to kill these disciples and this Jesus immediately right now on the spot and be done with them. They saw and they heard the pressure and they followed and they believed. And now Jesus says, not only am I praying for them, but I ask on behalf of those also at the end of verse 20, who believe in me through their word. This is a prayer for the blossoming body of Christ. Christ prayed for the present disciples, but he also prayed for the future disciples. Who are these future disciples? These are the elect who will be hearing Christ preach by the disciples. Who are these future disciples? These are the elect who will be hearing Christ preached by the disciples. One pastor noted there are but two generations of Christians, those who heard from the Lord and those who have heard from them. There's only a certain generation of Christians that actually heard the Lord Jesus teach himself in person. All other believing comes through the word of God going out from the disciples. Thomas Manton said God could teach us without them, speaking of those disciples, and manifest himself unto us by secret divine flux or influx into our hearts. But he uses men, and that not out of indigence, but indulgence. God indulges our faculties and frailties and he condescends and comes to us in a way we can understand he uses men he uses people we have to see this as an indulgence of God A lot of people want God to just beam down something and speak to them directly. Let me tell you something. If God were to do that, we might be all just gone. You better be glad he uses means. 
You may think that causes more confusion. Better to have a little confusion in the means than be dead and disintegrated. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. Thomas Manton goes on. He says, it's not for any efficacy in them, but for congruence to the hearer as a means most agreeable to our frailty. There is mercy in this appointment, speaking of using these disciples to bring the word in a way that people could understand. This is why the day of Pentecost is such an amazing event. As they stand and preach, all the peoples from the different regions are hearing the word of God in their own dialect. Not some strange words, but in their own dialect. It's amazing. God condescended the Phrygian herd in the Phrygian dialect. Jesus is praying for those future disciples who will believe in him through the word of the present disciples. He's already praying that the seed go forth. He's already praying that the seed would grow and develop and blossom. If you spend a little time looking in the book of Acts, you see elements of these sermons. As you unfold the New Testament letters, you see the evidence of the language. These letters and these sermons are telling us who is the Son of God? Who is He? And what did He come to do? But he's also praying for them because these are going to be the elect who will be, who will be. There are some who are then at that time, and these are the elect, the elect who will be listening, believing, following, and obeying. The seeds of the gospel that will bloom will be listening soon. And Jesus is lifting them up. What greater care could there be from a Savior and Lord than to lift up these future disciples? The seeds of what will bloom will be developing. These disciples will, will be believing and following and obeying. Think of these early believers in the book of Acts and all of the things they had to go through. Paul having to go preach in cities where they would literally chase him out of town. They would at times beat him in the streets and leave him for dead. Stephen proclaiming the word of God in the midst of the, the, the religious leaders of the Sadducees and the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and, and him standing there and him being just beaten to a pulp and eventually stoned to death. Jesus is already lifting Stephen up. He's already praying for Stephen. 
He's praying for Paul. These are not abstract words for Jesus and just some kind of thing that he just said, oh, for those who believe, do something good for them. That's not what it is. He's literally in the moment praying for these future disciples, lifting them up to the Father. Do you think Stephen was one who really believed and followed and obeyed to the very end? Do you think Paul was one who literally believed, followed, and obeyed to the very end? What about John? To the very end. Jesus is lifting them up. But you know what? It's not just in that moment. He's lifting up future disciples for ages to come. People in our day who are believing and are following and are obeying. In the very mind of Christ, they're being lifted up to the Father who knows them from eternity past and will never leave them nor forsake them. Well, that leads us to this third point under number two. A, these are the elect who Jesus intercedes for now and in the future. There's an intercession that's taking place. Think of the elements of his high priestly office being revealed in the moment. Jesus is lifting these people up as high priest. He knows he's about to to become the sacrifice. That hasn't happened yet, but he's already lifting them up as high priest, interceding on their behalf. It goes to help us to think that this is not something that just kind of happened out of nowhere. The way many uh, religious writers of the last couple of hundred years or a few hundred years want to act as if Jesus just kind of came on the scene and he just kind of unfolded himself and he became the Gandhi of his day. No. This is something from eternity past, before time ever began. This is an unfolding of the work of Christ and his high priestly office is being revealed in the moment. This is not something that just unfolded as if Jesus decided to take a stroll and then ended up one day calling himself Messiah. How much trouble is the world in when you have a view of Jesus as though he's just this individual who just kind of went on a stroll one day and then finally kind of said to himself, well, you know what, I think I'm a Messiah, so I'll tell people that. This prayer unfolds the great tragedy of that thinking. For here we have an insight into the Lord Jesus praying for those also who believe in me through their word, the word of these disciples who will be there in the future generation and the generations to come. This was not just happenstance. This was a part of an eternal plan being worked out 
And here the Lord Jesus in his high priestly office is revealing these truths and who he is as high priest is being revealed. Think of the elements of his prophetic office being revealed. He's praying for the future church's unity in God. All of these disciples, wherever they will gather in local bodies, he's praying that they would have unity in God. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. There's a sense, first of all, which we have to note that to Jesus, this unity is not abstract. It's built on the very nature and being of God. That there is a oneness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit being one in essence. It's not three gods. Not one God working in three different modes. It's one God. In three persons, blessed Trinity. But it's not abstract in the modern sense of the idea of the love of God either. So many people want to talk about being unified in the love of God. What does that mean? Jesus gives... A greater sense to that. In verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. The perfected unity is not a unity in perfection in the moment, it's the sense of understanding the unity of the context of the whole. Of the gospel. God's love is not abstract. It's not just a feeling. What Jesus is praying for here is not that everybody gets together and all has the same feelings. Due to human nature, that's not possible. How many feelings do we have in here at the moment? Some of you feel good, you're glad to be here. Some of you don't feel so well, and you kind of think, well, maybe I shouldn't be here. Some of you are feeling things about whatever you dealt with last week. Some of you are feeling about things that you're going to deal with this week. Some of you are feeling lots of stuff. There's all kind of feelings. The idea of love as a feeling is so abstract, it can't be the very basis of Jesus' prayer, and nor is it the very basis of the gospel. The unity that Jesus speaks of in the love of God is built off of the whole sense of him being sent into the world that the world would know who he is and what he is to do. It's very much in John's gospel and in his letters that we be very specific about understanding God's love 
being revealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, who Jesus is and what he came to do. These true disciples that Jesus are lifting up in the present and in the future, they are not deniers of who Jesus is. They are believers of who he is and what he came to do. And they are willing to follow and obey his commands. For so many today, the idea of Jesus being our Savior is not wrapped up in actually following and obeying him and really understanding who he is. Jesus' prayer is is more than that. This unity that he's going to speak of is more than that. As he talks about the unity itself, he's not giving some credence to an idea that somehow these people become little gods. Notice in verse 21, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. First of all, Jesus is giving another description of his divinity or his deity. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. It's another reference to the oneness of God the Father and God the Son. But secondly, when he says that they also may be in us, the in us is not the context of making us little gods. And there's a doctrine out there where there's people that say those types of things. Uh, I don't encourage you to go research that much. It's quite abstract and strange. And, um, but if you want to read on it, I'm sure you can find some things on it. But that's not even the essence of what he's saying because he says here that they also may be in us. It doesn't say that they also may become something. It says that they may be in us. What does it mean to be in the Father and in the Son? This is the whole idea of what it means to be adopted into the family. This is the whole idea of what it means when Paul talks about in Ephesians being in Christ. Being in something is being brought into it. I want you to Think about the whole idea that we've discussed in this further, in this prayer, is what it means to be in the family of God, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. When we are those who become in the family of God, something drastic has taken place. We talked this morning briefly in Bible study about reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? You are brought into his family. How are you brought into his family? You are brought into his family in Christ. When two parties are at odds with one another, there needs to be reconciliation so that the two parties can have peace. The only way for us to have peace with God 
is that we would be in Christ. How we brought into Christ is that Christ would do a work that no one else could do. And then that work, that work would be attributed onto the account or put onto the account of many. There is absolutely nothing that you and I have that we can offer God for him to allow us into his family or his kingdom. I don't have the right birthright to come into the family or the kingdom of heaven. I've been born a sinner. By nature, I'm a sinner. I was conceived in sin in my mother's womb. So for me to go before God and say that I would be in him would actually be blasphemy left to myself. What appeal would I make? What birthright do I have to say to him, I am in you. I am in your family. I am a part of who you are. I can make no such appeal. The only appeal that would be right and good is to say that I believe in Christ Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what he will do, and is doing. There's a lot unfolded there. If you've been here for any length of time, you know we've unfolded different facets of that. But... Those things are the appeal, the only appeal that matters in reconciliation that I would be in Christ and I would be allowed into the family. To believe in Christ and to ultimately believe in Him and all of who He is is that I would be in Him. Jesus is not telling us we're little gods or made into little gods. He is saying we are brought into him, into his family, into his kingdom. And in the kingdom, there is a certain unity of being in that kingdom, in that family. John in his letter really spends a lot of time trying to help people understand that. If you say you have no sin, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So if a person says, I have no sin and I love Jesus and I'm in the kingdom of heaven, what do you, are they really in the kingdom of heaven? Are they really in the family? Are they really in Christ if they say I have no sin? No, they're a liar and the truth is not in them. John goes on to say, if you're not believing in who the Son of God is, that he is perfect and righteous and holy, you can't say, I am in Jesus and Jesus is a good teacher, just another man. No, you're not in Christ when you say that, when you believe that. There's no unity in the Godhead 
Because God the Father and God the Spirit would never say that about the Son. They would never say the Son is just a good teacher who's a human. No, they would say he's the perfect Son of God who came to this earth in the, in the, the, the flesh of man, sinless flesh, and he lived and he died for sinners. He's the Son of God come to this earth. That's what they would say about him. So if we lie about who Jesus is, then we cannot be in Christ. If we deny the resurrection of Christ, these are serious matters. For people who want to talk about the love of God and want to talk about believing in Jesus, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Here's what it means to be in me or in us. And this is the type of unity that Jesus is looking for. There are churches dotted all over this area. There are churches dotted all over the state and all over the United States and all over the world. But if these groups gathered, if they are telling people any of these things that we've talked about momentarily ago, they're denying the actual, true understanding of the Scripture. Now, I didn't say anything about whether somebody had a guitar in worship, did I? Right? J.C. Ryle has a good statement in some of his material where he talks about there's a difference between unity and uniformity. Somebody may use a guitar to help aid some of the singing and worship. Now, I think there ought to be thoughtfulness to that, be helpful. But at the same time, I can't proclaim that a church is outside the bounds of being in Christ because they actually use a guitar. I have to go to much more biblically minded things to start saying stuff like that. If they're denying the Trinity, there are oneness Pentecostal groups that deny the Trinity. We would say, no, 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 that, that's, you can't go there. You can't deny the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, and Jesus is talking about that kind of unity. Now, like I said, I want to say a few more things about that next week. But we'll unfold it in this sense. There's not only this idea of unity, but there's an idea of purpose. Jesus is praying for the future church's purpose in the world. These disciples are going to be the ones who make proclamation. A proclamation 
in verse 23b, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now, we're dealing with the fact that this love is something that's not abstract. It's not just a feeling. There's something more to the idea of love here. But even in that, there's also a sense in which the purpose is we are to be about this proclamation. Jesus is praying for the future church's purpose in the world. The church, firstly, is a means of revelation to the world regarding the truth of who Christ is and what is his office and his task. We're the ones that are supposed to be proclaiming this, living this out. We're the ones in the, the, the gathered body. This is a purpose we have. The church is a means, number two, to reveal the love of God in Christ to a fallen world. Not only who Jesus is and what he will do, but to reveal, be a revelation of this actual love of God. The love of God is not abstract. It's shown in the actual person and work of Jesus Christ. To deny any portion of that, you're not actually telling people about the love of God. It doesn't mean we shouldn't help people in other ways and things like that. I'm just saying in a gospel sense, the actual message itself. Thirdly, the church is a means to Christ, uh, to reveal Christ's future second coming with all its benefits and judgments. People like benefits, don't they? We like to have benefits at our job. We like to have benefits now through the government. We like to have all kind of benefits. One of the main teachings of the gospel is that the, any benefit of this world will not help you eternally if it's only a worldly benefit. And the church is here to reveal the benefits of the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ alone. It's to tell the world that you're not just a body. You're a body and a soul. Do you not understand that you're a body and a soul? And there are consequences for who you and I are as humans as to our sin. And the benefits of the second coming of Christ is forgiveness will be eternally recognized. Reconciliation will be eternally made in its fullness. Eternal life is granted as a benefit. There's a benefit of a changed heart toward God. The benefit of peace with God. Let's ask ourselves a question. Do we really want peace with God? This is part of the proclamation to the world as we live our lives daily. But there's also judgments. 
There's going to be judgments against the ruler of this world. In John 16, 8 through 12, Jesus speaks of the Spirit coming and he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. One of the world's greatest sins is it doesn't believe in Jesus. Now to you and I, we, that rolls off our tongue with ease. But the fact is, do you realize there are so many people walking around out there today going about whatever it is they do and they don't recognize that one of their greatest sins is that many of them have heard of who Jesus is and they do not believe in who he is? And that's going to be a judgment against them. It's a benefit for the believer to have believed and what will be gained through that. And for the unbeliever, it's a judgment against them. The Spirit will convict them concerning righteousness. And then Jesus says, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. He says, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He's speaking in a future sense of Satan already being judged. And that judgment is full force in the very death of Christ and his resurrection. There's a final judgment on Satan and those who would follow him. And I know this sounds strange and odd in some way, but we have to recognize that if you're not in Christ, following Christ, you are actually following Satan. And, and I don't say that with any joy. I don't say that glibly. I don't say that as though I just want to throw that around as some guy frothing at the mouth going, you're a bunch of Satanists. But I want you to understand when Jesus makes the accusation that we're, you're of your father the devil when you're in in him and not in Christ. That the actual seed of sinfulness in the context is that the flesh is actually willing to follow the things of Satan. Satan is a rebeller against God. In our human flesh, and our human natures, we are rebellers against God. And so therefore it means that in our human natures left to ourselves, we want to follow the schemes of the devil. That's a pretty serious accusation, which most of the world would scoff and mock and laugh at. And this is why the judgment of God is so serious. When God sends his son to return, there will be great judgment. There'll be lots of benefits given to those who believe and believe rightly. doesn't mean that they believe every single little piece of doctrine in but there's certain doctrines that have to be believed but then those that don't believe they're still clinging to the ruler of this world who's already been judged 
He's already been judged. Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I mean, can't, can't we just grasp for a moment how serious the nature of that is? When Jesus is questioned by Pontius Pilate about his kingdom, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. When Jesus returns, he will put a final subduing to this kingdom. Satan's already been judged. He's no longer ruling in the way that he once was. But because unbelief is still the mantra of this present world, the working out of Satan's schemes continue to go on under the auspice of the sovereignty of God. And yet in his sovereignty there's a day coming that there will be a final judgment on the ruler of this world. And all of his schemes will be finally put down and destroyed in fullness. This gives us a moment to just think of the elements of his royal office, his high priestly office, his prophetic office, and his royal office. Even in this prayer, he knows that there are future believers. He's praying for them. That's interesting, isn't it? He knows how they will hear and believe, both in verse 20. And then in, in verse 23, he knows how to rule and reign over those believers. He says, I in them. That the Spirit of God would change our souls, that Christ would be ruling and reigning in us. I in them. Well, I just want to leave you with three thoughts this morning. I think we can gather from this portion that believers need a high priest who cannot fail. If you're here today and you're still depending on yourself and you think you have some self-righteousness that you could offer to God, then you've not understood your need for a high priest, for somebody to enter on your behalf before God and intercede. Believers need a high priest who cannot fail. If our belief is to mean anything at all, then the high priest cannot fail, and it's only Jesus who will not and cannot fail. One writer says one of the most striking assurances given in the Bible to Christians is that Jesus Christ is their perpetual priest. We see Jesus being lifted up here and him lifting up his words to the Father as the perpetual priest. He's already working in accordance with what the Hebrews writer says in the context of the Old Testament. For it is attested of him, Hebrews 7, you are a priest of forever according to the order of Melchizedek.
later in the same chapter from the Old Testament. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus is a perpetual, the perpetual priest. And we are in need of him. And he cannot fail. Secondly, believers need a shepherd who cannot fail. When that prophecy is given in Ezekiel, it's about a shepherd and the people being one under that shepherd. I don't know if you've watched animals meander through a pasture. Um, but they can go oddly different directions. Sometimes they'll stay in a group and sometimes they don't. But sheep need a shepherd because they're often uh, not very bright and they'll get themselves into trouble very quickly. And we as believers, we're the sheep that have been saved from ourselves, but we're in need of a shepherd who cannot fail. Because we are prone to wander in our sinfulness, we need a shepherd who knows how to call his sheep, a shepherd who knows how to gather his sheep, and a shepherd who knows how to keep his sheep. And this is what the prayer has been about, the calling, the gathering, and the keeping of the sheep. Thirdly, believers need a Messiah who cannot fail. The Messiah is a king, and the kingdom of heaven is at stake. You and I may think that we can go fight these battles and we can win for the kingdom of heaven. But if we don't have a Messiah who's eternal, holy, righteous in every way, and perfect in every way, then the kingdom of heaven will be lost. You see, Jesus' prayer is a kingdom prayer. And how is it that the kingdom will not be lost? It's not lost if he is the reigning king. Now and forevermore. Jesus is the only one who could pray this kind of prayer once again. I've said that to you multiple times. Because the kingdom is at stake. When you look around at this world, do you see in your mind a totality of the righteousness of God being worked out in every place? That's not really what I think of when I view the world and all that's happening in the world. I go, yes, righteousness is, is it's just it's being promoted everywhere, the very righteousness of God. When I see the outworkings of the world, it makes me nervous, right? And if I'm thinking as one warrior, the kingdom is going to be kept in, in its proper place because I'm the one who can do it, then I've mistaken the whole identity of the kingdom itself. We're in need of a Messiah who cannot fail. The kingdom's at stake. That's why it's important to understand when Jesus says, I will not lose one of them. 
One of the great mantras of warriors as they go to battle is they bring their dead back. They try not to leave one on the battlefield. Jesus is saying he's not going to lose one of those who goes to the grave, for they are his eternally. And the kingdom is his. And it may be at stake, but it's in great hands, for he is the one Messiah. In this prayer, we should find real assurance. We should find real assurance that our high priest, our shepherd, and our king, he will not lose one. He will not lose one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just ask for your mercy upon our ears. May there be truth that is able to be illumined to the believer's soul that they could go home and think on these things. May we come to the time of your table and think rightly about ourselves. We are all sinners. And if any one of us is a believer, we're a believer by your grace alone. Shown to us and worked out through the person of your son. According to his work alone and nothing else. When we come to the table, may we praise the Lord Jesus for what he has done in living a perfect life that his body was broken and that he shed his blood for sinners. Give us hearts to confess our sin to you that we would think rightly about who you are. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.